You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. If you've been paying attention to the coronavirus outbreak, you've probably heard of hydroxychloroquine, uh, a drug that President Trump, among others, is touting as uh, a potential miracle cure. And the the president has now said he's taking it. But the story of hydroxychloroquine and how it became something that Trump has latched onto uh, is much more complicated than you might think. It actually starts in France with a rogue doctor and his laboratory and has spread around the globe, becoming a major issue not just in the United States or in France where it started, but also in another major country, Brazil, where the president is insisting on it as a cure. And all of this says something deep and profound about the nature of the outbreak and the way that it plays politically around the world. And that's what we're going to talk about today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hi. I knew we would talk drugs one day. (laughs) Let's talk about the story of how hydroxychloroquine became an international phenomenon, because it's really striking to me. As far as I can tell, based on the reporting that we've all looked at pretty exhaustively over the course of the past week, there's a French doctor, Didier Raoul, who is really at the heart of this. Right, Alex? Yeah, so he conducted this study uh, in which he gave hydroxychloroquine, which I'm just going to call HCQ, because I'm going to trip over that name at some point. Uh, Fair enough. And uh, it was a non-scientific study by no stretch of the imagination. All you need to know really is that the patients knew what they were taking. They were different populations. There was no control group. Like there was no real reliability or scientific value to the study. And yet it was promoted as, hey, look, some of the patients that took this drug who had COVID got better, completely ignoring the fact that some went to the ICU and one died. Still, This was promoted out. It became famous in France. A person over in Silicon Valley talked about this study on Tucker Carlson in which this person said it was a 100% success rate. This is a great drug. And naturally, hours later, Donald Trump goes hydroxychloroquine, greatest thing of all time, and starts to promote it. So it took really no time, frankly, from when the French doctor, Raoul, I'm I'm assuming that's how it's pronounced, why not? I, I actually tested this with my French-speaking wife before the episode, and it's Didier Raoul. This is my best pronunciation that I learned 
as well as I can do it. French speakers who listen to the show, I apologize. It is not my wife's fault. She's fluent. I just butcher French pronunciations routinely, despite my last name. Well, I prepare to do it completely. Didier Raoul. Um, that's not oh, a bad guy. But, <laughs> no, but poor guy. Uh, I'll just retract that. All right, Pepe Le Pew on the show today. <laughs> I think you should keep that in. I think he himself, the doctor himself, actually claimed when he released the results that there was a 100% cure rate. So it wasn't just right. that... Yeah, like it wasn't just the the Silicon Valley mm. guy. Like the Silicon Valley guy was like repeating what the doctor himself claimed that the clinical trial, as he called it, had a hundred percent cure rate. So there's that. No, so that's right. The, the the way that came about is basically Raul did not count the people that went to the ICU and the dead person, basically because the results that they were relying on were like they would take they would check to see who had virus samples, and you can't really do that for someone who's in the ICU or dead. So from those that he was able to swab, there were, at least in his estimation, fewer virus samples in the in the patient. And so, therefore, they were like, well, look, it's working. But Like lower viral loads, right? Right. But all this to say is that, again, this was a non-scientific study. It is very, very small sample size. And the vast majority of the medical community, it should be said multiple times up front, has not shown that hydroxychloroquine has been useful for treating COVID. And yet... The study leading to a Fox News hit leading to Trump is what helped really build up this sort of groundswell of support for for HCQ. I want to talk about Raul a little bit more because I find him a fascinating figure, right? There's this long profile of his history and his study on hydroxychloroquine in the New York Times recently. And uh, one thing I thought was interesting is that he actually, prior to this, had a pretty sterling reputation. He had this reputation in France as, as a skewerer of conventional wisdom. And it's not that he always followed all the rules. In fact, he has condemned what he called, quote-unquote, the dictatorship of the methodologists. No, it's it's that he had challenged certain things that were established in fields of microbiology, and he, he turned out to be right some of the times in the past. So this isn't just like a random guy who came out of nowhere who's hawking snake oil, though he does look suspiciously like Donald Trump's personal physician, Harold Bornstein, who like they look ridiculously similar. It's really disturbing. It's, this, it's, yeah. Very, yeah, it's very, weird. very disturbing. But setting that that like silly thing aside, Raul was was like a you know a fairly respected and significant figure, at least as far as I can tell from this article, uh, until this happened. And then all of a sudden he became this super divisive figure in French, not only medicine, but also politics. Right? He became a rallying cry for French people who are frustrated with the government's response. France had a very, very high infection rate and death rate by international standards. He became so important that President Macron went to visit him. Something like 58% of French citizens believe that hydroxychloroquine is an effective treatment for COVID. And those numbers are even higher on the populist left and right, right? The, the people who really, really dislike the sort of centrist technocratic government of Emmanuel Macron and support a sort of old school leftism or um, the party formerly known as the National Front, uh, now National Rally, it's far right party. Uh, It's just, it's fascinating to me that this guy, um, by by doing what he had always done uh, and challenging the conventional wisdom through not always reliable methods, has turned into, during this outbreak, a political icon. It's also literally sparked this massive prescribing of hydroxychloroquine, particularly in Marseille, which is where his his institute is and where he is a researcher. 
In the last week of March alone, over 10,000 people were prescribed hydroxychloroquine just in Marseille. So that's a lot of people. Um, It it looks like a 7,000% increase in the prescriptions of hydroxychloroquine just since the pandemic began in certain parts of the country. Like That is a remarkable impact for one researcher to have in this one small study. This drug is being studied all across the world. There are studies in the U.S. You may remember there was a study done that looked at data from the VA, from the Veterans Affairs Administration uh, in the U.S., where they were using hydroxychloroquine. In the U.S., they're using it experimentally, right? Like, kind of like the right to try. Like, if people have no other option and doctors have the right in the U.S. to, to try it and prescribe it. So the VA was using it. And that study showed basically that there was no net benefit, but that there were some drawbacks, some dangers to the drug, and that it caused heart arrhythmias. And and that's obviously dangerous, especially because a lot of COVID-19 patients tend toward the the higher end of the age range. Um, There was a study in Brazil that actually had to be shut down because of the heart problems that were happening with the patients, so they shut the study down. So there are studies going on around the world, but the vast majority of them so far, and again, We're going to get into this a little bit more later, but these aren't like randomized controlled clinical trials, most of them. A lot of them are just in the field. We're trying this drug and we're going to see what happens because that's kind of what you have to do right now. It's what doctors are doing. And it makes sense. There's a massive pandemic, right? And doctors are like, they're throwing everything at this to see what works. Um, So the the problem, and again, we'll talk about this more, is that by touting it at at leadership levels, that you know Trump and, and Bolsonaro, you have the risk that, like in France, prescriptions are going to go up seven thousand percent, and that people who maybe shouldn't be taking this drug are going to be taking it, um, and and that can be potentially dangerous because we still don't really know what the side effects are for COVID nineteen. It's worth noting that this drug uh, was initially designed as an anti-malarial, and so people who have been working in tropical areas where malaria is prevalent have reported the side effects that Jen was talking about. They're not just, the side effects aren't just physical in terms of your heart health, though that's a serious one, especially in older patients. They're also mental and and psychological, right? People who take this have a tendency to become paranoid um, and also a tendency towards out-and-out hallucinations, which seems particularly dangerous in a world leader who's taking it, especially one who's not exactly known for his... um, Lack of delusions. I don't know if there's a better way to put that that's not double negatives in the case of President Trump. But it's interesting that it's not just a grandiose doctor in France and a grandiose American president who have been taking it, but also a grandiose Brazilian leader, which is to say Jair Bolsonaro, the president of that country, who has become, I think, even bigger than Trump in terms of uh, an international booster for hydroxychloroquine. Yeah, no, he's not taking it that we know of. He says that he has a supply that he keeps on hand for his elderly mother. But yeah, he has boosted this and said that, you know, it's potentially like Trump, it's a miracle cure. So he basically changed the federal guidelines in Brazil. So previously, the drug could only be used in treatment for like severe cases of COVID-19. And the new guidelines basically allow it for for people at the onset of symptoms, so for like much milder symptoms and earlier on, um, for doctors to try it. Patients and family members have to sign a waiver, like recognizing the potential side effects. So he has been boosting this and now loosening the restrictions, which in some ways could be potentially good in terms of the doctors being able to try this more. But 
There's also the fact that he's had a hard time keeping a health minister because he kept trying to push this modified protocol and the health ministers, two in a row, who are both trained doctors, both quit under pressure to promote the early use of, of chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine, which are related, not technically the same, but they're similar. So literally, he, like two top doctors quit in a row because he was pushing this. And he finally got like some guy from an active duty army general to like fill in and sign off on it. It's very similar kind of situation, even though he's not taking it himself, that he's definitely boosting this and, and promoting it clearly against doctors' wishes. I mean, I think it should be noted, of course, that the the two leaders that are most promoting it, right, Trump and Bolsonaro, are also the ones that are basically denying the, how incredibly dangerous the coronavirus is. And, right. are, and, and in Bolsonaro's case, he's continuously called the coronavirus a little flu, that he's so strong from his past life that he could kind of deal with the virus regardless. Trump at least is saying, you know, Yes, people are dying, but yeah, maybe the economy is more important than than public health. But even so, they're, they're both, in Trump's case, it almost seems like he heard it on the news and he said, why not? Let's just throw everything at the wall. I mean, in the same way that he once, you know, said, like, why don't we just test drinking bleach, which no one should do? Um, or how about putting UV light into people, which no one should do? Uh, and so the, I think in Trump's case, it's a bit of, wishful thinking and looking for the silver bullet. And, and he's a very impatient guy in general. In Bolsonaro's case, it just seems like, almost like he doesn't care, but is convinced yet that this drug will will somewhat prevail. Macron is, is not necessarily pushing HCQ, but it does seem like he's facing a backlash. So uh, from, from people who are role followers, so I guess if there's something that ties all this together, it is Partly that there are leaders pushing HCQ, but there is this phenomenon that we've all become quite infatuated with over the uh, the past week is this term of medical populism. That is a perfect opportunity for us to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to dive in to the idea of medical populism that Alex just brought up and how it can help us understand what's going on with this particular drug in three of the world's largest and most significant economies. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Prop G Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts. 
Welcome back, worldly listeners. Uh, so in the first half of the episode, we traced the international diffusion of the idea that hydroxychloroquine, uh, a drug designed to fight malaria, among other diseases, could potentially cure coronavirus. There's no good evidence for this claim, nothing sufficiently dispositive and significant reason to believe that it doesn't work and has dangerous side effects. Nevertheless, the disease has become popular in the leadership of the United States and Brazil, and has become a rallying cry for a populist insurgency in France. So what we've been trying to understand is is why this might be happening, at least when we've been preparing for this episode. And Alex introduced at the very end of our last discussion a term called medical populism. We're going to use the term medical populism as defined in a 2019 article in the journal Social Science and Medicine uh, by scholars Gideon Lasko and Nicole Curado. And uh, Lasko and Curado's definition of medical populism is a is essentially is a a style of argument during disease outbreaks that, that has three components. The f- the first part of it is an appeal to the people against the establishment, arguing that some kind of elite structure is failing when it comes to the treatment and addressing of the disease. The second is a performance of crisis, by which they mean arguing and creating a sense that something has gone horribly wrong as a result of this medical situation and there needs to be some kind of clear solution for it. And that leads to the third part, which they define as simplified discourse and dramatized performance, which means that you sand off the complex edges of what might be the reality at stake and promise and offer simple solutions, common sense answers that you can do or would be able to implement if it weren't for the dastardly elites getting in the way of what the people want. This this seems like it's it's kind of what's happening here and kind of not in some ways. So I'm curious as to how you all think medical populism is de- as defined in this article, which has a few relevant examples I think that we can get into in, in sort of the historical precedents pre-COVID-19. But how do you think that this framework applies to the hydroxychloroquine debate, you two? I think one of the elements there kind of doesn't fit in the sense of acting as if there's a, a crisis that needs in, an immediate response I feel like in this case, that's actually just true. I don't think there's like a creation (laughs) of a crisis or people trying to act as if we need some miracle cure. I could see that in other types of false medical claims, like the stuff that Alex Jones tries to push and his like wacky pills uh, on his website that claim that, you know, you have you know low testosterone, all men are losing their, you know, that kind of thing, and, and we need to fix it, so you need to take my ridiculous supplement that's completely unproven. I think in this case, um, the, the, the circumstances exist that, you know, it, it kind of sets the stage for it, though. There is an actual massive crisis. People everywhere are terrified, uh, and, and people are scrambling to find a cure. But I think that sets the stage for the other elements that fit really well. In particular, like you said, Zach, the sanding off of the edges and the simplification. And I, I think one paper talks about the spectacularization. So the idea of an actual miracle cure. Um, and Trump has said, like, this could be the miracle cure. This could be, like, this could change the, this. I think he called it a game changer. And, and Bolsonaro, too, ha- has said that. And so pushing this kind of miracle cure angle to it, well, if you compare that to Dr. Anthony Fauci, when the Trump administration was still doing those daily press conferences from the White House, he would go up to the podium and would say, no, I don't think this is something that that is a safe drug right now. I think we need clinical trials. We don't have the data. We need the data. Like, that's the complicated answer, that we don't know and we need to study it, versus the kind of populist 
this is a miracle cure. And then I think just one step further is that divide that they're talking about, this kind of anti-elite sentiment. The elites are either distrustful or they're just not doing the right thing or they're ignoring the the real evidence of what the people want. Like the people want to try hydroxychloroquine and you're not letting us because you elite scientists are, you know, think you know better than us. And that's very much the sentiment that we're seeing. Um, And so I I think that the medical populism fits very well in, in the hydroxychloroquine situation, in particular in the three cases, the three countries that we've identified. Yeah, I think all that's right. Uh, look, the appeal of Trump and Bolsonaro is, and their rises to power were that they offered simple solutions. I mean, here in the U.S. with Trump, it was just like, instead of talking about the intricacies of immigration reform, it was build a wall, <laughs> uh, right? And in Brazil, dealing with their massive issues with violence in cities, it was just Bolsonaro being like, send in the military. So it, it, it makes sense then that when it comes to a crisis like this, it requires a lot of time and effort and nuance and trial and error that they're just going, there's this miracle drug take it, everybody. And anyone that basically tells you it doesn't work is, is lying to you. And and this also feeds into this longer term crisis that we've uh, alluded to here and we've talked about on the show before, this collapse of the center, or at least trust in the center, these people who are technocrats, who understand, who are experts, you know, who, who know this stuff inside and out, that if they say no to HCQ, then you kind of, and, and you're prone to believe, I mean, you've heard the president say HCQ could be a game changer. Now you're prone to believe the president over someone like Anthony Fauci, which leads to the fire Fauci movement, et cetera, et cetera. So it's no surprise then that there's this sort of medical populism thing going on. I did a very cursory review of sort of the history of medical populism, and I went down all kinds of rabbit holes, including like in the 1800s in, in the United States, when there was still some decent sense of, of medicine, there were tons of doctors being like, well, botany's better. Um, and that's just not the case. One uh, thing that Jen and I are both excited about learning was like Nero, the Roman emperor. Um, you know, the people came to him with like different offers of or, or different uh, cures for things because epidemics are not good for rulers, or particularly despotic ones, because they kind of throw everything into disarray. And so it's interesting that like this has been kind of a thread throughout history. One thing I really liked about the the paper that we started off talking about is that they are very clear that they're not trying to use populism as just some kind of generic term as it's often thrown about to describe literally everything about our current political moment. They're relying on, on very particular academic definitions that don't just apply to the current moment, uh, though most of their examples are contemporary. Uh, I, th- I think the one that really struck me as being relevant to understanding what's going on right now was uh, South Africa's experience with the AIDS epidemic. So they they talk about Thabo Mbeki, who uh, was the leader of South Africa after Nelson Mandela. And Mbeki, uh, unlike Mandela, didn't have the luxury of ignoring the country's rising AIDS problem. He had to deal with it. And he actually had a reputation as like a thoughtful, intellectual type. But his approach to AIDS was absolutely wild. He became basically an AIDS truther, right? He argued that HIV didn't cause AIDS. And this crisis is really an example of Western colonial rule being imposed on South Africa, again, through international health organizations. And what's interesting about Mbeki's approach, not only is that he's not characteristic or wasn't known for being characteristically populist in the way that Bolsonaro and Trump is, certainly not to that degree, if he ever was, it's a response by people in power sometimes. Populism typically is you know, framed as us versus the elite, the people versus the corrupt establishment. But in these cases, these three examples, 
these people are the establishment to a degree. They're in power right now, but they still rely on conjuring up a sense of there being some kind of elite conspiracy against them. In the case of Trump, it's, you know, the deep state, or he said something about how like a VA study was a Trump enemy document recently, or something along those lines. I may be butchering the exact quote. Trump enemy statement. Uh, and, And Bolsonaro was fired two health ministers, right? It's still, it's the same playbook because you can always find an elite establishment external to your rule to blame the problems on and say that they're inhibiting whatever the solution is that I want. And in this case, it seems like that's the playbook that Bolsonaro and Trump are most comfortable with. It's also the playbook that the anti-Macron groups in France are most comfortable with, and it's what they're defaulting to during the coronavirus outbreak as a way of rallying the public to their side. It is worth pointing out. I mean, I don't want to get too much into this, but... I did a piece about how there are like anti-lockdown protests rising up all over the world. And and it does seem like there's at least always some sort of population that is willing to listen or rather that is not willing to listen to elite opinion, that it wants to hear other viewpoints or at least wants to use the chaos of this moment to push their own. And so in the UK, Chile, Brazil, uh, even Germany, I mean, in like Germany, neo-Nazis are showing up at these rallies to push their their nonsense. And so like there there is an audience for this, right? It, It is finding people who want a a silver bullet or who want to no longer abide by social distancing or whatever it may be. There is this sense that there might be the right way out there and we're being led astray. And this worries me just in general. Obviously, I want people to be healthy, but it does make it harder for governments that are actually trying to solve this, and there are many, harder to do because if there are major countries that are having more infections, that you know makes it harder for everyone else to open up. But also, there's just always going to be this, this vocal opponent to kind of common sense solutions to crises like this, whether it be in the U.S., Brazil, or elsewhere. And that's what worries me a lot. Obviously, it's a minority group at this point. Let's be very clear. Like, I don't want to overemphasize how massive this sort of the, the opponents to the actual medicine and things that are out there. But still, they're vocal to the point that they're getting noticed by leaders. And that matters at a time when leadership is, is most required. I think there's a difference between the kind of medical populism we're talking about and the general desire to try these medicines, right? So there are a lot of countries where they're loosening restrictions and allowing doctors to try these medicines in the field. And that is based on a fairly common medical practice where you know there's a new disease. And so people are going to try lots of things, especially if there are people who are dying and there's nothing else you can try, like they're trying this. And so in that sense, like that is kind of normal and okay. I think the problem is when it turns political and it becomes an identity thing that I I want this drug because it, it helps me identify with my party or my tribe or whatever politically. So we, we're seeing that in this case. And there was a, an instance in Brazil where Bolsonaro supporters had gathered and were singing to Bolsonaro a song basically saying we believe in this cure. They're singing about chloroquine to him. We believe it will cure us in the name of Jesus, chloroquine, chloroquine. Like they're singing to Bolsonaro about chloroquine. That's remarkable. And in the U.S., similarly, you have people like Sebastian Gorka, right-wing populist-ish. Uh, Gorka. Gorka. Guy, uh, who, uh. you know, who's Trump supporter, who's a big Trump booster, 
And he took a picture and posted it on, on his Instagram or Twitter. And it was like a picture of a bottle of hydroxychloroquine. He's like, I'm taking it. And then like uh, this Republican politician was like, my whole family is taking it. It becomes an identity marker of like, I'm on this team versus this team. And I think that's really important for, for a couple of reasons. And we haven't really talked about the danger of what this means for the actual drug and for the people who are, are taking this. So what we really, really need, and this is what all the experts, the doctors and Anthony Fauci and everyone says, are like clinical trials for this drug. It could potentially be that when they do clinical trials, this drug does show some benefit, right? Like, we still don't have enough data to know. When this drug becomes politicized, it harms the ability to actually do those clinical trials. Because, uh, and there was a, a great piece on this, it's not even just the the danger that a lot of people have talked about, which is the danger that people try this drug and it's dangerous for them. But there's the other side of it, which is that when it becomes politicized and the other side is yelling, no, it's dangerous, you shouldn't take this drug, don't listen to the president, people are now actually pulling out of hydroxychloroquine clinical trial studies. And the, and the researchers who are trying to have these studies are like freaking out because they're like, no, people are just listening to the politics of this and they're identifying it with being like anti-Trump. So no, it's dangerous. So people are hearing that rhetoric and pulling out of these really important clinical trials. So in on both sides, it's really harming the ability to do the serious science that is needed to actually figure out whether this drug is useful or not. Like, that is critical for the world. And because it's been politicized, it is now harming that ability to even get that data. And that's, I think, really, really critical. I don't want to frame this as both sides are equally responsible, right? On the one hand, you have people who are promoting this drug without evidence. And on the other hand, you have people who are saying, maybe you shouldn't randomly take a drug when there's not sufficient evidence for it, right? It's not like two people are equally at fault here. It's that there's a faction that is working to politicize this. And the result of that are downstream negative effects, even for people who might be on the sort of more epistemically justified side of not believing in the drug's evidence, but due to their political identity, aren't willing to even be involved in trials that are associated with it, as, as Jen was just saying. But and just to add, there are, of course, other dangers here in the sense that there are people who actually need HCQ for actual cures that are not COVID-related, like people who have lupus or people who actually want to go into malaria-ridden areas. That's what these drugs are for, and it's leading to some shortfalls of it. So that actually matters for people who who legitimately and, and sort of clinically need uh, these drugs. There is actual harm here, other than, as, as Jen rightly pointed out, those who are taking the drug and either harming themselves or perhaps uh, dying from it. Or, or I think this is an important thing. Like, this is not just populism for populism's sake in the sense that even in the U.S., like, if someone's not wearing a mask, you kind of have an idea of where they lean politically now. So it's kind of wild to me that now we have polarized and politicized so much over different aspects of, I, I would totally would have believed this on the political aspects of like lockdowns, you know, when to reopen economics, that kind of always made sense. And that was always to be expected. But on the medicine, on the medicine, I just, I find this insane, honestly. I know there's a historical precedent and there are always people who believe conspiracies, but I want to learn more as to what really animates someone to go, yeah, I'm going to base a lot of my identity around a drug right now. Well, I mean, I think anything can be politicized, right? Like the if if aid, foreign aid to Ukraine can become the major flashpoint in American politics, then then so can the prescription of a drug during a pandemic, right? It's the same general phenomenon. What what I find really striking 
about the medical populism stuff is that it's, it's not actually that effective in terms of rallying support for these parties. While most global leaders have seen their approval ratings rise during coronavirus and as a sort of rally around the flag type thing, Trump hasn't. In fact, they've started to slip a little bit and his head-to-head polling against Biden in the 2020 re-election is, is quite bad. Meanwhile, Bolsonaro has seen significant drops in support, both in terms of his personal approval rating and the way that Brazilians rank the performance of his government, whereas state governors in Brazil who are mostly supportive of social distancing in a way that Bolsonaro isn't and less obsessed with chloroquine have seen their approval ratings stay particularly strong when it comes to the handling of the coronavirus. And what strikes me about that is that it's just much more difficult to frame the world as a conspiracy of elites against the will of the people when you are in charge of the government, right? That script isn't playing when you're telling people, or at least for the majority of the population, while there has been polarization, there's also striking unanimity on the need to do, in both the United States and Brazil, on the need for more effective social distancing and to take the disease seriously. And Trump and and Bolsonaro have packaged their hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine stuff as part of a generalized, uh, they're telling you you need to do these economically disastrous things you don't. And this whole package, this populist package of reopen and use our miracle cure has been strikingly ineffective as a political tactic. I don't really, I have a theory as I, you know, as I just outlined as to why that's true, but I'm not exactly sure that it's right. Well, yeah, I mean, I think you're right, Zach. There's also a recent poll that was just out that showed that a lot more Americans have faith in in Dr. Fauci in terms of trust on coronavirus issues than they do in President Trump. It's one poll, but would seem to suggest that during a pandemic, a lot of people actually really want to hear the like, if it's complicated, it's complicated. Uh, I just want to know what's going on. And Vox's existence is kind of built on that principle that people don't need like easy, simple answers if you take them on, on the journey with them and explain the complicated stuff. Like quick and easy populist answers are just not cutting the mustard right now. As an aside, if you'd like to contribute to Vox to support our work, we would really appreciate that. Thank you very much. We have open contributions. It's a very hard time for media. So if you like us, you know, just go do to that. Vox.com and you'll see the thing you can click on. <laughs> or just send us mustard, because Dr. Jen said that I really want like a sandwich with mustard on it. <laughs> please don't send me mustard. I'm good. Please please send me mustard. I, yeah, I would like mustard. If you have any fancy mustard, like I, I really like sweet and hot mustards. Um, so I so I'd really appreciate that. I think we may have hit a natural stopping point in this conversation. I want to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton, for all the work that she does remotely and for putting up with us in this episode, particularly because we said the word populism a lot, which means a lot of pop peas, which means she has to do a lot of editing to make sure that uh, we don't sound terrible in your ears. Uh, And we want to encourage you not only to contribute to Vox, but rate, subscribe, and review Worldly uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot. And uh, we will talk to you next week, though I will be out on a pre-scheduled vacation. So these two bozos will figure out some way to talk about something interesting. We're going to talk about Zach the the entire time. 100%. We're going to talk about Zach the entire time. Jinx. Bye. Bye, everyone. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G pod special sponsored by Mercury. 
You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.